0: Thank you, our God, for that new wine, the new wine of the kingdom. We pray that the new wine would always be in new wineskins, that we would be the vessels that carry the sweet taste, the fragrance of your very self into the world around us. Thank you, our God, that you are the one who sustains us, you grow us, You keep developing us that we might be your effective and very fruitful, faithful disciples. We pray now your blessing upon us as we give heed to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning you've got the older version of Kynan. And Kynan's probably thinking, if that's what I look like when I get to that age, I'm not too sure. So he asked me during the week if I might be able to put something together on compelling grace. I said, I'm sure I could. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. I love that word grace, don't you? And it was wonderful that grace was baptised this morning. And uh, what a wonderful expression of, of faith. You'd know the acronym for grace, no doubt. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what many people would see That word meaning, that God has poured out his love. Jesus emptied himself that we might be full. We've got all the riches of the kingdom. And it's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, as he's expended himself on the cross in particular, but then the glorious resurrection, so we know that new life. So today we continue looking at the series of grace, but in particular... Compelling grace. And as I was thinking about this during the week, my thoughts went to what is it that really motivates us? What compels you to do things? What motivates you? What might drive you? And what is it that might actually compel certain people to do extraordinary things? The last couple of weeks I've been reading the book Beyond that tells the story of the race to put a a person into space back in the 60s. It's a very interesting read. I'm only 100 pages into it. But it talks about the competition that was taking place between USSR, the Russian people, and, of course, the United States. The United States were publishing what they were doing. Everybody could read about it. There were television reports on it and so on. The Russian people were keeping it very quiet. It was done clandestinely, very much undercover. It was a race. Who would be the first country to lift a person off the earth into space? It was a strong competition. There was a lot at stake. Reputation, saving face. It was the Cold War era. Two powers working at this, and deep down it was competition that was driving them to be the first. The Russians sent up some dogs to see if they could survive. The United States people sent up monkeys for them to survive. All these tests before they were prepared to send a human. I mean, you know the outcome, of course, the Russians were first to do it. What a story. And it got me thinking about other people of history and what might have motivated them. So my thoughts went back a few centuries. I thought about Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, a Catholic priest, a scholar who delved into the Scriptures and realised that some of the teaching of his church was contrary to the Gospel. He had a strong emphasis upon grace by faith, God at work, not human endeavour that brings about salvation. And he was so determined about that that he actually came up with his 99 theses and he nailed them to the castle church in Wittenberg and that commenced what we today know as the Reformation and you and I stand in that tradition today. And I thought of other people like John Wesley in the 18th century, an Anglican priest who preached to the multitudes in the open air rode on horseback, sometimes preached four times a day. Thousands and thousands of sermons he preached. An author, a scholar, and because of his work commenced the Methodist revival in England, a revival that many historians would say prevented England going through a revolution such as took place at that time in France. And I thought about Lord Shaftesbury in 19th century working tirelessly in the British Parliament to eradicate child labour and to bring children to be able to have an education and to be prevented from being chimney sweeps. Then my mind went to William Wilberforce as well in England in the late 18th and early 19th century, who worked persistently against huge opposition even in the Parliament over many years and then he abolished through his work the slave trade. Then my mind went to Harriet Tubman. A hundred years ago, a slave in the United States, brought up in the Methodist tradition, escaped to the north, but that wasn't enough. Thirteen times she went back into the south and rescued 70 people from their slavery on what was known as the Underground Railway. And then I thought about Martin Luther King, who stood on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. with a a speech that changed the course of civil rights in the United States and brought freedom to the black African people in the United States. Then I thought of Mother Teresa as well, a woman who devoted her life to helping, to ministering to the destitute and dying people on the streets of India And started a whole movement and recruited many, many nuns into the cause. What do such people have in common? What is it that we could see is the link? It is only grace. It is God's grace, but it's not passive grace. It's not simply the grace that we might receive. It is compelling grace. It is grace that drove them grace that compelled them, grace that said to them, this is something that God has given you to do and by the grace within you, you you're able to achieve it. Persevere, hang in, don't give up. Continue what God is calling you to do. It wasn't competition like it was in the space race of the 1960s. It was something within, not external. It was deep within, it was grace. God's compelling grace. Today is Palm Sunday, the day when we celebrate that triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you may recall that as he moved with his followers from the Mount of Olives towards the city of Jerusalem, the crowds were crying out, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. They shouted, they they praised, they worshipped. The Pharisees said to Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. Remember the reply of Jesus? He said, if these people were to remain quiet, even the very stones would cry out. This event of Jesus is such a compelling grace event that it demands a response. And if people don't respond, then Jesus is saying, all of nature will. It requires that kind of response. And when Jesus got close to the the city of Jerusalem, deep emotion overcame him and he wept. He wept for the city that hadn't listened, that hadn't responded to this magnificent grace of God. He said, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and it is hidden from your eyes. And so once in the city, he entered the temple and he saw that it had become a place of commerce, of money exchange for goods, items to be sacrificed, animals and birds. And Jesus cleansed it. For he said it's become a place of commerce, a den of thieves. It's meant to be a place of prayer. And all of this is driven by God's grace, the grace of God within our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think about Jesus? When I think about his humility, what he was able to do in human form, how he expressed such deep love, how he healed people, how he reached out to those who were beyond the margins of life, how he included people who were unlovely and so on. When I think about that, and when I join it together with that amazing grace of God, the divine nature of Jesus expressed so beautifully, I find that putting together the human side of Jesus and the divine side of Jesus, he is absolutely irresistible. So I give him my life. Thank you. That this Jesus exercises such compelling grace, I can do nothing else but say, "You are my Lord and my Savior." So, where would that leave you? What is it that might compel you? Think of that song we sang at the beginning today, based on John three sixteen. For God so loved, expressed such grace, so loved the world that he gave his only son that those who put their trust in him might never perish but have eternal life. Do you see the motive? It's grace. God so loved, that drove God to give his son. That's the plan. The outcome is eternal life for those who believe. So I wonder where there is such compelling grace operating today. Where is such passion expressed? Remember that Rick Warren, the now retired pastor from Saddleback Community Church in Southern California, wrote two books. One was The Purpose Driven Life. And in that book he was saying to people, you have purpose. There is meaning to your existence. Don't live a meaningless life. Then he wrote The Purpose Driven Church reminding us of the key things that we do as a church, that we do have purpose. We are people of grace, receiving grace, but also expressing grace, and we are compelled to show it. So what are you passionate about? What is it that you would sacrifice under God in order to give in some way to a greater cause? Are you simply placid? Are you simply going through the motions when God is saying there's a higher calling, expressing God's grace in some way that's going to make a really, really big difference? Sometimes it will mean stepping out of our comfort zone. I found that time and time again in life. I thought this weekend was going to be easy for me. I didn't expect a phone call midweek from Kynum. But see, God's grace compels God's grace wants us to step into something fresh, to do the new thing, not to remain where we are. It can be comfortable where we are. It can be easy. But God is saying there's something else going on. I've got more for you. Step into it. Get into the Word. Learn more about my grace and my, the way I work with people. And there's some scriptures that help us in all of this. I love 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 where Timothy perhaps was not doing what he was called to do. He wasn't expressing his gift as he should. And so Paul, the apostle, wrote to Timothy and he said, God didn't give us a spirit of fear and timidity, not at all. Any fear doesn't come from God. Timidity, holding back, doesn't come from God. But God is a compelling, gracious God. God, he said, has given us a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Or self-control. And later on, when Paul was wanting to explain about his ministry, why he was transient, why he was itinerant, why he was moving around, going to Asia Minor, going into Greece, why he was doing this, he talked about compelling grace. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, preaching the good news is not something I can boast about, I am compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I do not do it. I love the old translation of that. He says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. What is it that you ought to be doing that you would say, woe is me if I don't do it? Because the love of Christ controls us. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 to 14, where he's talking about how people are responding and the various ridicules that are coming to him and his companions as preachers. He says, if it seems we are crazy, and, and of course, the world out there thinks Christians are crazy, so that's okay, just accept it. But it says, if it seems we are crazy, it is to bring glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? If people think we're crazy, it's to bring glory to God. And then he goes on to say, and if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit that we can communicate clearly. Then he goes on to say, either way, Christ's love controls us, Christ's love urges us on. The grace of God compels us. So, amongst the many things that you might be doing, the choices that are before you, the things that you might be able to do, what is it that's the best thing that you can do under God's compelling grace? Let me just suggest a couple of things that might be helpful in this. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. It talks how we should seek wisdom. Many books in the Old Testament say seek wisdom above everything else. Jesus is personified wisdom. He is the Logos in John 4. One, the Gospel. The Logos became flesh. The Word became flesh. Wisdom personified in Jesus. So I think as God's grace compels us, the thing that we could seek above everything else would be pure wisdom. Let's give an example of this. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at the the stories in Luke 15 of the shepherd who went looking for the lost sheep, the woman who went looking for the lost coin, and then, of course, the father who had the two sons. The older boy stayed at home, didn't like it when the one who was the reprimand came home. Those two stories are quite different, really, as they talk about how God works his wisdom in us. In one, or well, in the first two, actually, we are called under God's grace to act immediately. The shepherd, once the 99 was safe, went immediately looking for the lost one. The woman, when she lost a coin, searched immediately for what was lost. But the father in the third story waited. No doubt he prayed, but he waited patiently. He waited for the moment, the moment when the son came to his senses and returned, and then the father ran and met him. God gives us wisdom. His grace compels us. But the wisdom might be, in this situation, I'm to act immediately. But in another situation, I'm to wait for a while. For the season to be right. That moment pregnant with opportunity that God gives. The serendipitous moment that God gives. Seek wisdom under God's compelling grace. And secondly, a passage that's set for today in the lectionary that we've been following through this series is Philippians chapter 2. And in it, when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, have amongst yourselves the attitude that Christ Jesus had. In the actual translation, it is have the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And I think that God's grace enables us to think like Christ, not only to do what Jesus might do, but to think as Jesus would think. Remember those little wristbands that we used to wear at times, little rubber things with WWJD on them? What would Jesus do? And so the emphasis is upon what would Jesus do in this situation? But I reckon, and you could, you could actually market this if someone wants to get onto it, you could have one that says, WWJT, what would Jesus think? What are the thoughts of Jesus? And for us to keep praying under God's grace that we would begin to think the thoughts of Jesus. And the way that we can do that primarily is by getting into Scripture, reading the Bible, getting into God's Word and allow the God's Word to get into us. And as we do that, almost any thought we can have would be the thought of Jesus. So what might be the compelling grace of God at work in your life? And I appeal to you here, there are many distractions today that could cause us to deviate. In the busyness of life, we could be dulled to the grace of God. We could. We could be bland. But I think what grace is calling for is passion, real passion, energy, drive in the cause of God. What is God? calling you to do what switches you on what would propel you to go to bed early so you can rise early the next day with new energy saying Lord this is the day that you've given this is the day of service this is the day in which I can absolutely immerse myself in what you have for me Lord how can I come under your compelling grace oh don't lose your passion God gives us a wonderful life to live. To come under God's compelling grace will sometimes mean we've got to step out of our comfort zone, to step into a higher calling. But when you go into that higher calling under God's grace and in God's power, you'll find that there's a higher outcome as well, a much higher outcome because it's God who's at work within you. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, so don't be troubled or afraid. And, he, and Paul said to Timothy, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power and love or grace and self-discipline. What would it be like in this church or any church if we said, yes, this kind of grace is real in my life. It's real in our congregation. It's real in our life groups or our community groups. It's real as we step into the community. It's going to be real at the Easter camp next weekend. We're going to keep praying for that. What would it be like if we said, yes, Lord, I'm not going to simply live a bland life. I'm going to get excited about this Christian faith because the grace that we're talking about is grace that compels, grace that gives purpose, grace that's rich in meaning, grace that causes us to step out in faith and take the risk of faith because that's where God is leading us. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Our Father God, you are so gracious in all the ways you deal with us. So gracious in the way that you sent Jesus, our Lord and Saviour, into the world. For our redemption, for our reconciliation to you. Lord, we, we thank you and we bless you. Thank you, Lord, that your grace abounds. It's outrageous. It's persevering. It's reconciling. It is grace that is compelling. It's the grace that took Jesus to a cross of sacrifice, but also the powerful grace that raised him to life. Because of that, we know that we have new life in him, life that's rich, that's full, that's free, that's energetic, life that makes a difference, life that has a huge impact as we step out and seek to influence the world with your love because it's your love that drives us and it's your grace at work within us. Thank you, our God, for this wonderful truth. May we live by it and hold on to it always. In your name we pray. Amen.